Let's pray together. Oh, great God and Father, thank you for such a wonderful shepherd. Thank you that you do not leave us without a helper, a shepherd, and a path. Thank you that you bring us home safely, both today and every day. And God, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would quicken our minds and stir our hearts for what is the joy of getting to know you better through your word. Lord, there's no greater way than to know you than to know what you've said. And so as we take this time now to open your word and to seek wisdom and knowledge, but ultimately a nearness to you, a fellowship to you that, that only you can give. So we ask, we say, God, please draw near to us this morning as we seek to draw near to you. Cause us to push aside the things of this day in this world and focus solely on you. And we need your spirit to do that. So we ask that he would come in a great way. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, this morning, if you have a Bible, if you'd like to join me in the book of 1 Peter, we're going to look at the beginning, the first nine verses of this letter of the Apostle Peter, which is the book right after James, if you've been following along with what we've been looking at together the last few weeks that I've been preaching. Let us begin this morning by reading verses just one and two as an introduction to the book and to help us kind of orientate ourselves to the author and to the audience and how it sets the tone for the rest of the letter. So join me as we read verses one and two. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So first, Peter introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as the commentator Wayne Grudem points out, is that the office of apostle is the only one in the New Testament that comes with the tag of Jesus Christ. So as Peter writes as an apostle, he is writing with the authority of Jesus Christ. And as a sent one, which is what apostle means, a sent one, as a sent one for Jesus, when he picks up his pen, he is writing with the full weight and authority of the king of the universe. And so who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to, as it says here, the elect exiles of the dispersion. In writing this way, he is making reference to a phrase, the dispersion, which began being used in the time of the Jewish exile. So if you know your Old Testament, you know that when the Babylonians came and took away Jerusalem and Judah, and it took away the kingdom, from then on the Jews were scattered within the nations of the world. This was called then the diaspora, which is just another way of saying the dispersion. So they were dispersed into the nations. And Peter is using that imagery here, as, and it has a strong tie to the historic Old Testament faith. But don't be... Too quick to think that he is writing to Jews only. This is a spiritual dispersion for followers of Christ. The towns mentioned here were all predominantly Gentile. So he's not writing to the 12 tribes of Israel, but he's writing to believers who are scattered throughout all of what we now know as modern-day Turkey. We continue as exiles even today. 
as Christians that live in nations that are run by the world. We are exiles, meaning we are displaced. This world is not our home. To quote Paul from Philippians 3.20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we share a lot in common with the original audience of this letter, which is what makes this book so easily applied to the modern reader. Peter ends his introduction with the beginning of an onslaught of amazing truths about the Godhead, the full Trinity. He explains that our status as elect exiles, and elect just meaning chosen, the chosen exiles, to be connected to the works of the Trinity. He says first, in verse 2, that they are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What in human history is unknown to God? Is there a situation where God doesn't know how it will pan out? And hopefully, you would say to that question, no. But, is this also true about our status as the elect? Some would argue that the term foreknowledge is God looking down the corridor of time and saying, God knows who will choose me, so I will elect them. But I would just humbly say to you this morning that I don't believe the Bible uses that term in that way. Just two texts for now, and of course, if you have more questions about this, please see me after the service and we can talk more about this. But turn with me to Acts chapter 2. starting in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And as you're turning there, this is Peter, same author, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 2, starting in verse 22, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So my question to you is, did God look down the corridor of time and see that Jesus Christ would be born and that was who the Savior was going to be? Jesus had a plan. I'm sorry, God had a plan for Christ before the foundation of the world. I would also argue if you go to Romans 8, the next book over. So that was Peter, the same author of the letter we're looking at. This is Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says this, starting in verse 29. He says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see that on top of of God foreknowing, he also predestined, which just means planned ahead. So God planned ahead, and he called, and he justifies, and he glorifies. So this idea of foreknowledge and predestination is this idea that God knows from the foundation of the world what is going to happen. And that's a big deal to Peter as we're going to see in the, in the continuation of this letter, knowing that God knows what's going to happen and is in control of human history is a great help to us. And we'll see more of that as the letter goes on. But if we go back to 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 2, the next phrase he says is, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to mold us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
This is done through trials and being, and, and being dwelt, indwelt, by the Holy Spirit. We're going to look more later at this in verses 8 and 9 of this, of this chapter, so we'll get to that. But notice for now that part of our elect exile status includes the promise of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So part of being an elect exile, a follower of Christ, includes a progression of becoming more like Christ, which is what sanctification means. It's this idea of growing more and more like Christ. And finally, it says in verse 2 that the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So the big picture here is that our status as elect exiles is exclusively found in obedience to Jesus, meaning responding to the gospel call to put our trust in him alone for salvation. And the sprinkling of blood is the perpetual forgiveness and atonement for our ongoing sins. We are not, nor will we be, perfect in this life. And we need Christ's blood to continue to pay for our sins. Thanks be to God that we are sprinkled by his blood because we need it daily. And this is just the introduction to the letter, which probably could have been a whole sermon in itself. But now let's look at verses 3 through 9 to get a, to get a better idea. So where's he going? Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So back in verse 3, verses 3 through 5, we continue to see that Paul writes these lofty truths about God. He begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. So he's saying, May God be praised. Let us worship him, the God who is the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the, the, the banner. That's the goal. We need to be praising God. And so why? What is the reason that Peter gives? And he says, Because of what God has done. Right away he says, He has caused us to be born again. Notice the wording here. Peter continues what he starts in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 by telling us God caused us to be born again. In his foreknowledge and in his plan, he brings us into new life. And why does God do such a great thing? Well, it says, according to his great mercy. This theme runs through the New Testament, that God saves us not because of anything we do, but because of His character, His nature, His mercy, His willingness to make a plan for, for sinners like us. He shows favor to undeserving sinners like us because of His mercy. And, we rec- and when we recognize this, we have but one response, and that is, as it says, to bless God. And an inter- integral part of this new birth includes a living hope. It says at the end, middle of verse 3, 
What a blessing it is on top of a blessing to have a living hope. A hope that says that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it says in the end of verse 3. So the bodily resurrection of our Savior purchased for us both new life and a living hope. We're starting to realize that Peter is expanding our vision and understanding of the fullness of what our salvation really entails. Our view of the gift of salvation needs to be expanded. And that's what Peter is doing for this group of elect exiles throughout Asia. And this is what we need to. We need to have a bigger vision of what it means to have salvation. So how great, so going on, how great is our living hope? How great is it? Well, it goes on in verse 4 to say that this living hope is also an inheritance. And that this inheritance has three powerful characteristics. And by inheritance, Peter is using imagery that we understand even today, right? A typical inheritance is a gift received by a surviving party granted by a benefactor. Often a parent or a grandparent could leave money or an estate or property to a child. The idea here is that we have gained an inheritance as followers of Christ. And the inheritance that we're waiting for has three characteristics, and they are imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the characteristics of our inheritance. Imperishable means not subject to decay, not liable to perish, indestructible, enduring permanently. Uh, Undefiled can be defined as not tainted, but pure. And unfading can be defined as not liable to lose strength or freshness or even of coloring. Not liable to wither as unfaded. So the idea is that these qualities of this inheritance are that there is everlasting in, so it's everlasting in, in quality, in purity and beauty, and it never diminishes in value. It is the best inheritance there is. With an estate or with property, with the, the power of the dollar, it's always in flux. But this inheritance never loses a speck of value. It stays at the same level of value, which is infinite. So we can be confident that it awaits us once this life is complete. Our inheritance is part of the package of salvation. And it also says, radically, that it is kept in heaven for you. Notice how he says that. He takes these sweeping promises and then he just turns and says, for you. He's talking to an entire church, an entire region. This letter was being passed around. But he wants to turn to the individuals and say, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. On top of the value, it's located in heaven. It's kept there for you. Once you enter heaven, you have an inheritance with your name on it. What a great and precious promise indeed to know that if you've put your trust in Christ today and you were to leave here today and die, you'd be walking into a heaven that has reserved for you an inheritance. That has never been faded. So whether you've been a believer for one day or 90 years, the value of that inheritance never fades. It's kept for us, which means that we don't keep it ourselves, but that God keeps it on our behalf. And what Peter says next is that he's not just guarding this inheritance. Well, it doesn't need to be guarded. It's in heaven and it awaits us. But what we need to see is that by God's power, it says here, guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
this phrase really needs to be fully digested. If we're going by too fast, we miss it. To start with, it says, this is the beginning of verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. So we've got to start with who is the who is who? Well, the who, at the beginning of verse 5, is the you, the end of verse 4. So you, who, are being guarded by God's power. Those who have obtained the inheritance, it would be the elect exiles, the saved, the believers, hearing this letter. This, by extension, is us. And what are we being? We're being guarded through faith. The action, the verb, is being guarded. You are being guarded. And how are you being guarded? By God's power, it says. That is strength. That is true power. There's no greater power found in the universe. And usually that type of saving is hyperbole. But that is not true here. God's power is the ultimate power. Just dwelling on this fact alone is enough to boggle the mind. But he goes on to say that the guarding that is being done is accomplished through faith. So God's power is guarding us and and keeping us and, and bringing us to our inheritance that is in heaven. And he's doing so through the mechanism of our faith. Our faith that is a gift of God. So the power to be saved and the power to be kept in the faith, he gives and he powers. We are being actively guarded today and God does it through the channel of your faith. But unless you think that you have to muster more faith to experience more guarding, remember that your faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So we walk by faith that is a gift, and a a gift that is guarding us. And the commentator Wayne Grudem summarizes this section by saying, God's power continually works through our faith. Do you wish to know whether God is guarding you? If you continue to trust God through Christ, God is working and guarding you. And he should be thanked. So we thank God that he guards us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, it says. One final thought for those who are wondering about salvation being revealed in the last day. Again, Peter is expanding our understanding of all that salvation entails. Unfortunately, in Christianity today, our understanding of salvation is anemic and it needs some vitamins. If we think that being saved is just putting our trust in Christ, what does that mean in its entirety? It's more than a decision. Being justified means that we are in right standing with God, yes, and amen. And that is usually what we mean when we say we are saved. But salvation includes promises for the last days. In the end times, our salvation will be made complete. And that completion is what is being revealed to us in the last time. The point Peter is driving home is that our inheritance, our gift, our salvation are all finding their culmination in the final coming of Jesus Christ. That's where our salvation leads us. It leads us all the way home. More on this as we go, because Peter references this again and again in these verses. It's the primary focal point of all the points that he's Making, But we go on now to verses 6 
and 7, Peter turns to the topic of trials. But notice in verse 6 that he begins with this phrase, in this you rejoice. Now this is looking back at the truths presented to us in verses 3, 4, and 5. Peter confirms what the other New Testament writers say about trials, that we do not rejoice in them. We rejoice in the promises of God. Peter is saying, remember your hope, your living hope, your inheritance, the promises waiting for you in your last days. Remember these. Because even in this, Peter is very clear about the purposes of our trials. And what I think is interesting is he almost minimizes them. And I think this makes sense in light of the fact that he's presenting us with these sweeping truths of this great salvation. So in light of this great salvation, in light of this inheritance, in light of all of these things, and in light of the fact that God is guarding us, then he says our trials are only for a little while. And he also says, if necessary. Right? These are all phrases from verse 6. Peter is saying that even if your trial endures your entire life, 90 years, 100 years if you're blessed, this is but a little while within the view of eternity. He's also saying, if it's necessary, isn't it great to know that our trials are done by necessity with God? There's no frivolous trial. There's no misstep misstep or mistake made by God. But everything that is done is only what is necessary. But maybe you think, why is it necessary for me? Why do I have it worse than My brothers and sisters have it, or how I would perceive it to be. I know many of you here this morning, and many of us know each other. So we might be tempted to ask these questions based on what we see, right? I feel like I'm, I just feel like maybe you got it a little easier than I do. Why is that? But the Holy Spirit, through Peter, understands this too. And he goes on to say in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. So the Bible gets it, doesn't it? We can and usually are grieved by our trials. They're not a walk in the park. This is why I believe Peter begins this section with this call to rejoice in the truths that we know. Because our time on this earth could be full of grievous trials. So knowing these truths doesn't prevent trials. And it might not prevent them from feeling grievous either. It probably won't. This is important for us to understand, to suffer well for the sake of the name of Christ, if you are grieved by trials that you're enduring, it's okay to be grieved. It's okay to be grieved by trials. But the fight of faith says don't stay there. It's okay to visit, but don't change your address. Fight to remember the truths of God and that your trials are temporary and necessary, but not eternal. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, meaning they're just passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we also see about these trials that they're various. He says various trials. This tells us that there isn't a certain trial from God that falls under this umbrella, but all trials have the hand of the Lord in them. 
Therefore, we can confidently know that we are under the care of the Lord in the purifying of our faith. And not that we've strayed too far from the path and God's just letting us go. He's not letting us go. What he's doing is what Peter says next. He is purifying our faith. If you keep reading in verse 7, it says, the reason why these trials are necessary and for a little while, it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our faith is being tested. And the test is for genuineness, it says. Genuineness meaning the state of being or of the true original. Freedom from foreign mixtures. Freedom from anything false or counterfeit. So the idea of genuineness is it's pure. It's true. It is without mixture. We can't have faith plus. It just can't. B, what I mean is a genuine faith is one that is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Trusting God alone for his foreknown plan and believing the Spirit is working our salvation within us. If we think our faith is one of our own self-discipline or our own self-will, we are polluting our faith. If we are trusting in our idols, we don't have a pure faith. And the question is, what are the impurities in your faith? Is it economic security? Is it status? Is it your children, your job, your appearance? Is it amusement or entertainment? What do you trust in when things get hard? Is it as something as as innocuous as just living for the weekend? This is not a genuine faith. But take heart and know that our trials are rooting out all of those impurities. It's the purpose of them. This pure faith is the faith that is being powered by God. God is doing a good work in us. As it says in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So by mashing these two texts together, we see that this genuine faith is not just purified like gold, but it is more valuable than gold. As it says, it says gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Gold will pass away in eternity, right? God will end time and Christ will return and our faith will have infinitely more value than gold has value today. So let us rejoice in what matters, what remains, and what has value to God. And that is our genuine, pure faith in Christ alone. And the outcome in this is the same response to the previous section that it points to, and that is of worship. This ver- verse 7 ends with, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Peter is expanding our understanding of salvation, he's also showing us how our faith, which produces salvation, how it grows, how it is purified, and how it will result in worship when Christ comes. We won't say to Christ on that last day, you know, I really got a raw deal in this life. Couldn't you have gone a little easier on me? Those thoughts won't even enter because our faith will become sight and we will understand how our trials and purification brought us to the point where all we had was Jesus because he is all we need. On that day, 
We won't need anything else and we'll be ready because God has paved the way for that day in our daily trials today. So rejoice. He is coming. Know it is soon. And take the long view of your trials. Though they are hard, they are producing a faith that will say in the last day, finally, I can say without wavering, Jesus, you are enough for me and I glory in the truth that I will spend eternity with you. This is where we have to land. This is the destination that is promised to us. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So take heart. All the trials are doing are, are burning away the impurities of our faith and giving us something of value to present to God in the final days. The final point that James wants to make in verses 8 and 9 are about the uniqueness of the Christian faith over all other faith systems in the world. The fact that our Savior is real. He is alive. And we are able to experience nearness to Him, even though we don't see Him yet. It says in verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you have experienced these things. But have you ever stopped to think about how unique that is? This is because Jesus promised us this. Now I'm a big, as you can tell maybe from, from hearing me for the last couple weeks, I'm a big, how does it work guy? So how, how does this nearness to God work? I believe this happens through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So please turn with me to John chapter 14 as we look at a few texts briefly to help us understand how does this nearness, how is it that these elect exiles in modern day Turkey could say things like, I've never seen Jesus, but I love him. And I, and I rejoice in his day. And how do we say it now today? So turn with me to John 14, starting in verse 15. which says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this helper, this this Holy Spirit, as we call him today, is known not by the world, but only by believers, because he dwells with and in the believer. In the same chapter, look down at verse, well, we can just keep reading, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 22, Judas, not that of Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear are not mine, but the Father who sent me. Verse 25 then picks up and says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit dwells with us, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, and he teaches us 
things. It's this nearness to God that he brings. Turn over in verse 15. Look at verse 26 in chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he says, the Spirit will bear with you. He will bear witness about me to you. And one more text for now in chapter 16, verses 13, 14, and 15. They say this. Where are you? When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take away what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring the things of God to man. And what he brings to us is truth and comfort and compassion and doctrine and wisdom and all things. So we see in texts like this, when we see a text in James 4 that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Or when when Jesus says to doubting Thomas in John 20, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are especially blessed because we've been given the gift of belief and love from the Savior that we have not seen. Everyone in this room that has faith in Jesus Christ has never seen your Savior. You've never seen him. You don't know what he looks like. And this is true for us, but it was also true for those first-time readers of this letter. So many, many of those who lived in modern-day Turkey, these elect exiles, were probably alive when Jesus walked the earth. But they were not in a place that Jesus was. So Jesus never went that far into Asia. So many of these hearers were alive, but they were also not witnesses of the physical Jesus. But also think about what Peter is saying here. You have a special love of God because you know him in the way you know him. Peter has more to say about this in his second letter. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We actually looked at this text in Sunday school. Well, let's start in verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16 of 2 Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. So what he's saying is, I was an eyewitness to all of this. I saw it with my own eyes. So what, what, is, what, is, what does that mean then? Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place. For until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So what Peter is saying is, yes, I was an eyewitness to this, but you have something even greater than my eyewitnessship. It's the Word of God, written by the Holy Spirit, by men, real men carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And these, these words of the Lord are from God, not someone's own interpretation. So Peter is saying, you have something better and more powerful than my own eyeballs. And you might think to yourself, is that, is that unique? But what's interesting is Jesus taught this when he walked the earth. Turn with me to Luke 16. I think this is a, a fascinating thought to have when Jesus, Luke in, in chapter 16, turn with me there. In chapter 16, starting in verse 19, this is this, the parable, it's a parable about a man they call the rich man and a man named Lazarus. So starting in verse 19, it says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now, sidebar, not the Lazarus from John 11. Different Lazarus. Okay, not, not the guy that Jesus brought back from the dead. I know sometimes when names come at you, this is a different Lazarus. He was covered with sores, verse 21, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That is heaven. The rich man also died and was buried and into Hades, or we would call it hell. He began to be in torment. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and he saw Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. So again, there's a real under, under theme here of, of the trials of the, of the believer and, and, and becoming going into heaven and, and receiving this inheritance. So there's these undertones here as well but not the main point of the text, but you're seeing some connections as well. Verse 26 says, Besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Basically saying, no purgatory. You are where you are when you die. Verse 27, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone would just go from the dead, they will repent. What does Jesus say? He says to them, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. The power of God's word is a power of of faith, not sight. Jesus is saying, they have the word of God, and that is enough. If somebody were to come back from the dead and say, it's bad out there, believe in Jesus. If they don't have God's word, it's not enough. So Jesus teaches in his bodily ministry, which is so fascinating because he's there. If Jesus wasn't there, or if Jesus wasn't, I mean, he's he's bodily there, this would be his time to say, believe your eyes, I am here. But that's not the message that Jesus taught. He says, they have the word. The word is what you need. How blessed we are to have something so powerful in our own hands right now. We have the power of God in our, in our hands, on our phones, and lying around all of our houses collecting dust. But it doesn't just convert us, though that would be more than enough. 
It also helps us draw near to Christ and experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When you get those small foretastes of heaven, right? It's the Spirit confirming with our spirit that we are children of God. What this truth makes me want to do is what Peter says we should do when we grasp this. He says, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible to fill with glory and obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So again, we're worshiping again. Verse 9 ends with the third refrain of worship. These three points all end with that. Glory, rejoice, understanding, all of that salvation entails to us and all that salvation accomplishes for us. Not only does our salvation save us from hell and renew us to new life and give us faith, which is purified lovingly by God through trials, but it is also a rich inheritance and a fellowship and a nearness to Christ through the Spirit, obtaining all of this through salvation. That's what salvation is. It's Savior from hell, new life, new faith, a faith that is going to be purified by trials, an inheritance that is rich and undefiled and waiting for us. And in this life, we have a fellowship and a nearness to Christ through the work of the Spirit. All of that is what we're gained by salvation. And this matters because it causes us to do what we were put on this earth to do, which is worship God, and our, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to probably the most important question we have to ask ourselves today. Have I obtained this salvation? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus Christ? You have obtained, you've been hearing of all the many benefits and blessings of salvation but they are found exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So if you are sitting here this morning and the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to the fact that you do not have this faith, believe that his death on the cross paid for the sins that were rightly charged to you. But in his blood is shed to pay the price. Believe that his death causes his blood shed for the price of your sin and puts you in right standing with God. Pray the wrath due us, paying the wrath that is due us because of these sins and giving us righteousness is what Christ did on the cross. So today, put your trust in Christ Jesus alone for salvation and you too will receive an undefiled, unfading and imperishable inheritance. For those of you here this morning that have already put your trust in Christ, I've been trying to put into words the inexpressible joys of all that our salvation affords us. There are so many more blessings and more reasons to praise God than we even think about most most days, aren't there? So one real application is to dwell with Christ in these truths. Don't let your understanding of his great salvation be the shallow end of a swimming pool, but pursue it like a surfer pursues the waves of the ocean. Salvation is deeper and wider than we even understand. Spend time causing you to give you more worship. Spend time asking God that he would give you more of a mind for these truths and in turn causing you to give more worship and praise to him. Right? That's how it started in verse 3. Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the application is the beginning. Praise his name. Because this is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We glorify God more by digging into what his word says about him. 
And we enjoy Him more through more worship. True worship. Worship of spirit and truth. The the type of worship that is glorifying to God. And it is only done through knowing the true God. This is why we take the Bible so seriously. And this text gives us so much to glorify God for. So let us seek Him to know Him better. His salvation better and enjoy Him more through worshiping Him in these truths. This isn't just a band-aid for the scars of trials, but this is the sap. This is the healing that comes and brings us into the glory of God the Father. We can take these eternal truths and trust in Christ completely through our trials because we know where we're going. Let's pray. Oh, Father of mercies, your character is mercy. You are a merciful God. And we thank you that through your foreknowledge, your wisdom, and your understanding that you've made all things come to pass that, that are to be. Both our salvation and every trial and tribulation, and including the promise of, of the gift of your spirit to dwell with us as a friend who sticks closer than a brother by our trust in Christ alone. So this morning I ask for anyone in the room that has not put their trust in your son Christ Jesus that you would open their eyes by the ministry of the Spirit to receive the power of this great salvation. For those here who have already put their trust in you, broaden our minds. Cause us to worship you more as the great God and Father that you are because of the truths of your character and who you are. God, our lives work right, and they work best when we are in line and worshiping you. So draw us nearer to you. Give us more of a mind for you. Help us to know more from your word as what glorifies you and honors you, what brings you joy. May we be people who live this life pursuing you. And we know that we do that by the power of your spirit. So we ask that your fullness, your full Trinitarian goodness would pour out on us this morning and that we would experience nearness by your spirit and we would be trusting in the work of your son, Christ Jesus as Savior. And we'd be glorifying you as the Father with such a great plan and that your hand is over all things and we can say it is well. We ask these things in the mighty saving name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen.